good to be back. It's frigid today, but uh, we're, we're together and ready to go. That's good. Um, today, I'm going to do just a little, we're going to, a couple things. Uh, one is today we're going to look at John the Baptist. So it is a bit of, of an icon. But what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to show, we're going to jump back and forth in the scriptures to paint the picture of what's going on to see like why John does what he does. And what this is a great example of how you look at the scriptures in all these different places to fill in the details, okay? And I wonder if you have you if you've ever wondered yourself uh why does John the Baptist you know, near late in life, uh, as he's in prison, send a couple disciples to ask, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Because John's over there, you know, in the desert going, hey, here he is, the Lamb of God, right? He's the bold guy. And then all of a sudden, he's like, are you the one? And so the question is, why does he do that? Now, a common sense response that I have heard from people uh, is well, you know, he's in prison and you know he's wavering in his faith. But I'm not so sure. Uh, I think that there's something else going on as to why John the Baptist asks if if Jesus is the coming one. So we're gonna we're gonna take a look at that today. The other thing is uh, I'm gonna transition. So what we have left of January, we're gonna do kind of this icon, looking at a text very closely. But then, starting in February, I'm going to shift a little bit, and we're going to look at the Christian life as, you know, as the early Christians saw it. So it's going to be kind of a theme of uh, living like the early Christians, uh, and, and then also looking at mission a little bit, and how they, how they looked at their lives as they looked around to the world around them. So it'll be, it'll be kind of a fun, fun little transition, and that'll put, get us into the book of Acts a little bit. And uh, so anyway, that's coming. And you'll see uh, we, we'll have a nice piece of artwork up on the screens down in the commons showing the, the transition for the ladies' study. So, okay, take a look at Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. And let's read it just so we know what's going on in there, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Luke 7, starting at verse 18, and I have the uh, New King James Version, and there are Bibles over in the, the corners there, so, Okay. Luke 7, starting at verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? 
And that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. And so here is the text. Okay, so... As we know about John the Baptist, he is the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And, you know, you can just imagine, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago before Christmas, that um, there was approximately 430 years of God's silence. And so, you know, you go from Malachi, and then you enter the intertestamental period. And it's very similar to the time with Moses. When Moses comes to the burning bush, you know, it's approximately 430 years of God's silence, you know, no, no prophetic utterances. And so you can imagine, 400, bless you, 430 years or thereabouts that's a long time, right? People can forget, right? I mean, think about how it is today, how quickly people can forget. Imagine 430 years. It's like, we don't even know what's going on. You know, that's so many lifetimes. And so John the Baptist comes along and he's preaching repentance. And how do we... What's the picture of John, the physical 
picture that the Gospels give us? Wild. Yeah, wild man. That's exactly right. He, you know, and even uh, if you look at icons, does anybody have an icon of John the Baptist, an early Orthodox icon of John? But, you know, his hair looks kind of messed up, you know, and he looks a little kind of crazy. <laughs> and uh, so you've got that wild man kind of persona that we often think of. What else about him in his physical appearance? Eight strange foods. Eight strange foods, yeah. Locusts. Sounds good, doesn't it? Locusts. Wild honey. That's not too bad. We could live with wild honey, but... Um, locusts yeah and then did he did he wear like really nice you know gucci calvin klein clothing or yeah camel's hair which is rough right a leather belt around his waist sandals living in the desert right so that's john the baptist you know in some ways a very prophetic sort of appearance but he's also that confident, strong proclaimer of repentance too, right? He's out there in the desert, out in the wilderness, and he's proclaiming, repent and be baptized, every one of you. you know. And his message is, like in John's gospel, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God. You know, and in John chapter 1, he does it over and over. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's doing all this pointing. So his, what, what is his place? So he's the bridge from the Old Testament to the New. But what's, his, what's he doing out there? Who, what's, the, what's that? Yeah, he's prophesying and he's saying, this, get ready for Jesus, right? And so... That's his place in all of it. So then Jesus comes and the ministry of Christ begins. And now what? Well, you know, in Jewish practice, <clears throat> and this goes on even in, after the New Testament, in, in the early days of the Greco-Roman world, every place had a school, you know, like every good teacher had a school. So uh, my dissertation topic on Clement of Alexandria, so he's in Alexandria, Egypt, he had a school. And one, a philosopher's school was either a failure or a success based on what kind of a teacher he was. What was his reputation like? And so... You know, this springs a little bit, I think, out of, I mean, it springs out of the Greeks, but I, I also think it comes out of the rabbi concept, rabbi to disciple. So the picture, the biblical picture is you have a rabbi who sits and teaches and his, he has disciples. And what, is a, what does disciple mean? Student, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a disciple is a student that sits and learns, a learner. 
And so the picture, the Jewish picture is you have a rabbi who sits and teaches and then the learners or the disciples sit at his feet and they follow him everywhere he goes. So, you know, I always told my, my catechumens, you know, if we were to do this the right way, you would follow me everywhere. You know, we'd go to Starbucks together, you know, we'd go to sit and, you know, and we'd walk through gardens and I would teach as we go. And, you know, it's just very kind of all-inclusive. And they were glad we don't do it that way, by the way. <laughs> they could only handle so much of me, you know. <laughs> but uh, so, so John had his disciples. Okay, so that's, that's the point. John was a strong prophetic voice and he was influential and so people followed him. And so look at the handout. So John chapter 1 verses 7 and 8. What do we know about John as he tells others? Because he was questioned. Who are you? What do we say about you? What are you doing in all of this? And so John 1, 7 and 8, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then in chapter John 1, verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out about Jesus. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus. Yes, exactly. And so he's a messenger. He's simply the messenger looking to Jesus. He needs Jesus too. And so John 1, 19 and then 20 to 27, take a look at that for one moment. So we're gonna, we, we are going to jump around today. So 1, 19 and then 20 to 27 of John. So John 1.19 is the questioning of John. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So he's quoting Isaiah 40 there, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. 
these things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And then the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Okay, so John has it pretty clear. You know, there is no question as to how John fits and where, where he views Jesus. Beginning then in verse 29, the reader gets to see John the Baptist's work. And what is interesting in John's gospel is that the testimony of John the Baptist comes first. It is made clear who John is before he begins to preach. That's an important point in John's gospel. Before he starts saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. Before that, it's put in order who's who. That's important. The author of the fourth gospel then gives us a hint about John the Baptist's disciples. So look at John 1, 35 and following. And so in verse 35, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold the Lamb of God. Now notice it said two of his disciples, okay? The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. A second glimpse into John the Baptist's work is given then in John chapter 3. So go to John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So it's when John gets thrown into prison, then there's this big shift. You know, it's like the changing of scenes in a, in a play. And then in verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, 
A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies, that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony is certified that God is true. And he goes, I mean, he keeps going. But so notice John the Baptist, some of John the Baptist's disciples are a little put off with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you ever caught that or not before that, you know, because I guess when I first learned about John the Baptist, I just thought everybody was going to be on the same page because everybody's waiting for Jesus. And so there's John the Baptist saying, hey, there's Jesus. And everybody goes running, right? But that doesn't happen. There is actually a lot of loyalty here that John's disciples have for him to the point that they see everybody, Jesus is becoming more popular, right? That's what they see. Hey, our guy, our rabbi, John the Baptist, he's been out there eating locusts for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, they should, you know, they should recognize him a little bit, but no, now everybody's going to this Jesus guy you know, and John's like last week's news. You see? Yes. I mean, this is an unanswerable question. Why wouldn't John say, look, the Lamb of God, I'm just, now he's just going to sit at the feet of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And his followers would just go with him, but he just keeps baptizing. Yeah, yeah. You could say he's just waiting until God tells him to stop, but... Yeah. Just, you know. That's a good question. Yeah. Well, it was kind of along that lines. Maybe it was us divine providence that he had John put in prison so that no one could follow him anymore. It, yeah. And accepted that. That's right. And it's true, you know, then it made the way even clearer that Jesus is here. Exactly. And I think I, um, you can look this up on your own when you have a little time, but I almost think in Mark's gospel, it is a little clearer. Yeah, so in Mark's, so Mark's gospel makes this a little clearer. Like there is a definite shift because in Mark 1, 14... You don't hear from Jesus until John is put in prison. Isn't that interesting? So John 1.14 says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So just boom, Mark is spot on. The time is fulfilled. John's put in prison. Now Jesus starts to do his thing. 
Your translation is kind of interesting in that to me, a stone and a rock are two different things. Oh, yeah, it's Petra, which, yeah, yeah, that's, that is an interesting thing, but, um, yeah, right, like a stone, yeah, that's true. My note says that Cephas in Aramaic and Peter in Greek both mean rock. Yes, that is correct. So New King James has an interesting translation, I guess, calling it stone. Yes. Um, maybe this is a catechumenic question, but um, what can we talk about the tradition of baptism um, while John is baptizing and how like it might change or does it change after Jesus died and resurrects? Yeah, so baptism before so the baptism that we have in the church, it is a baptism that is filled up through the cross, right? So the cross of Christ is is emptied and put into baptism. And so John's baptism is, is simply a purification, um, uh, you know, kind of, it's a signification. It's a baptism of repentance, but it is not a baptism like we know now where you receive the forgiveness of sins and you know put on the robe of Christ's righteousness and receive the holy spirit and you see this in acts because you know there is a point where uh you know one of the apostles is talking to some other people and they're like do you know the have you been baptized and we only know of the baptism of John you know so there was a difference yeah so that's that's a good question yes did they also used to That's true. That's right. But it was more of a purification. Purification. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, Holly? I was going to say, Johan, when he starts pastor chats and, you know, early Lord Supper class, he'll learn about the wordy water. Yes. That what John's water did not have was God the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. That's right. But. That's right. Now it's the wordy water with all three there for you. That's exactly right, because you know now you have the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit put with the baptismal water, which makes it the life-giving water. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And in the Old Testament purification, like what you were talking about, Stacy, like that—that that was an old tradition, right? That's like closer to the Levitical law, right? Yes. People had kind of stopped doing that, or it was just like a thing of the Pharisees that did that to look holy, but but. But John's asking them to like actually repent. Yeah. That because you know, did people you know, I know people had to purify themselves, right? Right. By like there were vessels of water at the wedding at Cana, right? Those were purification vessels. Yes. So people still had to do that? Yes. Yes. I mean it's it's interesting. Sometime I should try to find a really good uh, artist's rendering of the temple, but they had these basins with um, animals that were sort of like hold, like stone animals, like artistically made to kind of, they were like right around the basins. And the idea was you walked in between the water to get into the temple. And 
water, this whole concept of water, so this is at least going on in John the Baptist, uh, baptism of repentance, is every time God's people begin a new journey, they pass through water. You know, even to the point where when Elijah hands over his prophetic spot to Elisha, I think they're on the east side of the of the Jordan, and then they go, they cross over to the west side, and then and then the water parts, and then he crosses, and then he begins his journey. You know, so you know it's just con- and the same thing with the people uh, of of Israel when. Um, when Joshua leads them into the promised land, same thing, you know, and you can just, and then we just go on, right? You know, you know, all the water stories in the Bible over and over again to begin a new journey, you, you pass through water. And so that at least is going on with John's baptism, that there's a baptism of repentance and you're beginning a new journey. So you, you get in the water, but like Holly said, for us, it's that and so much more because the name of the Holy Trinity actually gives it that life-giving quality. Yeah. So, Isn't it also supposed to be just a remembrance about how God led them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea? Because aren't they always supposed to be reminded and they're supposed to be reminding their children so that they never forget how God saved his yeah, it's like for, for the Old Testament people, the, the water is, is like reflecting back on God's promises fulfilled. And, you know, for one of the interesting things about, you see this in the Old Testament, uh, the Torah, which is the five books of Moses, the Torah is usually translated in English as law the law, the people listened to the law. But to them, the books of Moses were like the gospels are to us. Moses' books were the, the message of redemption. Um, to the point, and I think maybe I mentioned this to you once before, but you have the Ark of the Covenant and the two tablets of the Ten Commandments were put in the Ark but then there was this receptacle on the outside of the ark that was fixed to it, and the books of Moses went in there. And so the idea was, everywhere they went, everywhere the people of God went, the ark led them, which is to say the word of God led them. And if the ark stopped, the people stopped. The ark went, people went. And so like the Jordan River, when they get to the Jordan River to go into the promised land, they go in with the ark and then boom, you know, it's split and then they walk through on dry ground. But that's a prefiguring of the word of God put with water does amazing things. But it doesn't come until Jesus and then his cross and his passion and his resurrection. And now all of a sudden you've got this baptism of this wordy water that now, boom. Yeah. Yes. So then there's, there's kind of a disruption in the practice of baptism 
between John the Baptist and then we don't really Jesus didn't baptize anybody, right? And so then then our type of baptism Well, what's interesting, if you go... So, first thing, um, look back to John 3.22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. So, okay, so that's the first thing. So now, say the second part of what you said again. Uh, We don't hear as much about baptism during his ministry. Then, and then, then at Pentecost, they baptized 3,000 in a day. Yeah. Well, exploded then. Exactly. So, it, yeah, exactly. You know, after Pentecost, then everything explodes. But um, what you really see with Jesus uh, are the miracles and um, the, the preaching and the teaching and then his journey to the cross. But you're right, you don't see a lot about baptism. You know, you hear about it with John the Baptist and you hear about it here in John 3, but then it sort of subsides and, it, you know, the evidence of who Christ is starts to become the focus, who he is and what he has done. And this is what you see, like, in the book of Acts uh, in the very beginning verses where he says... Uh, you know, in the first account, O Theophilus, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So that becomes, so Luke tells you in Acts 1, what's the focus of Luke's gospel? You know, it's the doing of the things Jesus did and the things he taught. And uh, now the church is is the fruition, is the fruit and you know, sees the fruition of all that Jesus did and taught. Yeah. Yes. In John 4, the first verse, it says, The Pharisees said that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So it's actually, that's right. So it's not actually, Jesus didn't actually do it, but his disciples did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any? Yeah. Yeah. This is good. This is great. This is... I'm trying to formulate a question, but I, I don't know if this has to do with Kronos and Kairos. Like Jesus has not died yet, so his baptism of you know forgiveness of sins before his death and resurrection. You know, we're talking about Kronos here, like oh, yeah. time happening. Is, does that? Does the, his like eternal time, his kairos, the kairos, like supersede that, and then you know he's actually actually is baptizing them with Father, Son, Holy Spirit because he has you know in his time already. Yeah, that's a really, yeah, that's a really good question. Because that baptism would change. Right. So I my thought has always been that. Chronos, so Chronos means time. So what Holly's saying is Chronos is one kind of time and Kairos is another kind of time. Chronos is, we get chronological from that, okay? So it's kind of earthly time. But Kairos is like an eternal time and the epoch, you know? 
And so how, we, how do we understand it? Um, in a linear fashion, I think we've always taught that Christ's baptism doesn't have the saving effect until after his passion. Um, but, but, you know, you could kind of see like, okay, the Kairos thing, um, you know, how does that work? But I haven't given it a lot of thought myself, but my, my quick answer would be that it probably was similar to John's baptism of repentance until his passion because, you know, living in earthly time, Christ dies and rises and then it establishes the church and baptism is one of the marks of the church. So anyway, that's kind of just a quick thought. Well, and also, maybe it was enough at that point that Jesus could forgive sins and that that was the real point. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Jesus is forgiving sins. He's leading everyone behind, right? He's leading everyone to the cross to behold it. And, um, and then, then the church begins, right? And word and sacraments are consummated and you know, given their power. And same thing with the Lord's Supper, right? Isn't that an interesting thing? Like there he is in the upper room uh, on the night of his betrayal and he institutes the Lord's Supper. Uh, and, but then on Easter, right? So on the resurrection, he's reminding them to do this. And, uh, yeah. Would wedding baptism have changed with Christ's baptism? Well, that's... Because there you have the Trinity, and that, would, that begins his ministry. So wouldn't that kind of be the segue? With his passion? Well, yeah, I mean, with the change of yeah. uh, the ramifications of baptism. Well, that's what I think. I mean, that's kind of the way I've always seen it, is like Jesus has to die on the cross and then be raised on the third day. And I think maybe this is, okay, this is good because it's like, okay, so think about this. Uh, Romans 6, I think I mentioned this once before, but if you go to, go to Romans 6, this is the baptismal, one of the baptismal texts that Luther uses in his catechism in the section on baptism. And it starts off... Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. 
So at least Paul is connecting the passion of Christ with baptism. And to me, and I think I mentioned this, but it's just so cool to me that the Greek word for united is symphitos. And it literally means to be planted together. So the idea is Christ dies. In baptism, you die. Christ rises. In baptism, you rise. And so your life is grafted in like two vines with Christ. Through his, through his passion now becomes your passion. And so I always kind of look at it like it's as though when you were baptized, you were transported back to, through the water you were transported back to the time of Christ and as he hung on the cross, now that's your life. You know, so you participate in Christ's passion through baptism and you become one with him. Um, when, before Jesus ascended, he promised to send his Holy Spirit and he said, um, you know, when the bridegroom leaves, then you'll, you know, we'll get the comforter. Okay, that's a good point. Because... That was, that was a means to receive the Holy Spirit, baptism. That is a good point. Yeah. Yeah, so the, Holy, the giving of the Holy Spirit is an important part at Pentecost and to the church, which then is poured into baptism, right? Like you said, uh, Jesus, when he was here, he did signs and wonders, and they knew, you know, through his signs and his wonders and that he was with them. You know, but he said, but when I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit to you so that you will know and you will continue to know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, okay. The was present at Jesus' baptism. Yeah, the Holy Spirit was present at Jesus' baptism. He wasn't, he wasn't getting out of the Spirit. Right. right. You know, but like up to Donna's point. Yeah. Because he was there. Why, why would I give it out? I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. Yeah. Why would he even give it to you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it? That kind of making sense now. <laughs> yeah. I thought to give it before to his disciples for his disciples to be able to do the baptism. Yeah. 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 Boy, this is good. In uh, chapter 4, 1 and 2, is your translation the same for disciples and In John, John 4, 1 and 2. Um, this is baptizing more disciples than John, so disciples too, but then uh, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Yeah, that's how mine reads. The same. Same. So he already gave lots of disciples, the, maybe power is the wrong word, so yes, to continue on. Yeah, at least gave them authority, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting... So were they early pastors already? No. So they, um, they are simply learners. So, you know, they're learners until Christ's death and resurrection, and, and then they are apostles, which uh, apostle is apostello, 
which means to be sent. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they are sent out in the Gospels a little bit, but it's a little different until, you know, same thing, you see it with Peter, like Peter's really shaky and uncertain about things until after the, after the passion of Jesus, and then, then he goes out and starts to preach. Yeah. Um, I think the, the disciples have always uh, believed that Jesus would be a conqueror of yeah. Israel. Yeah, right. They thought that he would be the conqueror of Israel. And so often they don't understand until after, right? It's kind of like they have to see the passion of Jesus in order to really understand what it's all about. Yeah, Donna. Well, going back to Matthew, um, to John chapter 1. Yeah. We're talking about the, um, John's two disciples. Yeah. And then uh, I was wondering, Peter, uh, Andrew and Peter were John's disciples first, right? Right. And then they became Jesus' disciples. That's my understanding. Were they the ones that went and asked the question, are you the Christ? Um, Peter... So they were wondering, John wasn't wondering so much. Well, I don't know who it is that, you know what, I'm not sure who it is actually that goes and asks, are you the Christ or do we look for another? I'm not sure who those disciples are. Was it not James? James? Yeah, the brother of John. Could have been, could have been. You might be right about that. Yeah, John of Zebedee, John son of Zebedee. I'll have to look and see if there's anything about that. Uh, yes. Uh, the, uh, the word of God was um, uh, never gone between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was never gone. Yeah. Uh, right. There was a Maccabeus that they had, um, they preached. Well, Yes, that's right. The bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, that's that's right. Um, But uh, those were not new revelations, though, right? Like those were just preaching what had been given before, right? Yeah. Yeah. From Moses. From Moses, that's right. Yeah, what I meant was there was no new prophetic utterances Mm -hmm. in between the Old Testament until John. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Um, So, okay, let's take a look here. This is great, by the way. This is a really good, really good conversation. So we get to the end of the first page here. And what also what's interesting, just notice, after John answers and says, he must increase and I must decrease, this provides John an opportunity to preach a small homily on the Son of God. So... You know, it's kind of neat how how the evangelist allows John to do that. Uh, Mark one fourteen and fifteen, we observe the transition from John the Baptist to Jesus, as I mentioned before. In Matthew four twelve, uh, we see that Matthew makes a statement. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, Jesus departed to Galilee. And so Jesus returns to his own city in Matthew 9, 1, 
And Matthew 9 is an interesting chapter because everybody seems to kind of lose their grip on things. And so if you want to take a look at Matthew 9, let's see here. So you have Jesus, Matthew 9, 1 to 8, Jesus forgives and heals the paralytic. And then Matthew, the tax collector, begins to follow Jesus. And then tax collectors and sinners come and sit down with him. And then the crux of Matthew's gospel, I I think it's the crux of Matthew's gospel, is here in verses 12 and 13, when Jesus says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I think this is directed in the text towards all these naysayers. I think because the tendency is to sacrifice. You know, the Jewish hierarchy, it's sacrifice. And even with John the Baptist's disciples, they're getting pretty rigid. And so it's sacrifice. It's not mercy. So Jesus is making it clear. And, you know, think about the way things are ordered. I always think that this is, is meant for a purpose in the Gospels. But you have... In Matthew chapter 9, I mean, think about this. This is Matthew's gospel. He doesn't tell his conversion until chapter 9. I mean, if you were doing it, would you, you, I might tell my right away. I'd tell my conversion right away because it validates what I'm going to say, right? But Matthew doesn't. Matthew waits until the healing Forgiving and healing of the paraclete, the paralytic, paraclete, paralytic, paraclete, paralytic. (laughs) And then he tells, so a miracle happens with forgiveness of sins. Then his, he tells about this. And then you hear that the crux is about mercy. And this, I mean, just thinking about this in terms of the church, Mercy and truth go together. And mercy must flow. Um, and our tendency is to sacrifice, like the human tendency. Yes, Holly. Um, I, I wasn't sure if it was in Matthew's Gospel, but Jesus cleansing the temple. Like, he wasn't so concerned about the sacrifice. In fact, the Pharisees were so concerned about sacrifice, they were willing to pour out to the temple courts for people to buy things to quick sacrifice. That's right. That's right. The cleansing of the... Yeah. And and along with that, uh, my understanding is that the, that temple court there where he overturns the tables and where the money changers are doing their thing, I think that was the Gentile section. So like if you were a Gentile, but you were a God-fearer, you could go into that part. But that was as far as you could go. 
And so the money changers have even ruined that for them. And so, you know, Jesus comes in and, yeah, it's not sacrifices, it's mercy. So that's a good point too. So then you get to uh, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So isn't this interesting how Jesus just said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then the very next thing is John's disciples come up and go, where's your life of sacrifice? Where's your disciples' life of sacrifice? Here we are, we're sacrificing our, our comfort and you know having nice filled bellies and you know being able to put our feet up and relax. But look at you guys. You need to sacrifice more, you see? So it's like juxtaposed. And this, just practically, our human nature, our, our fallen human nature tends towards sacrifice. We want to, we, feel, we always feel like we need to do more. You don't have to do this by a show of hands, but have you ever felt that way? Like, you ever say to yourself internally, I don't do enough. I should have done this. I should have said that. Right? We live like that all the time, don't we? And it makes you crazy, right? Uncontrolled, a life of sacrifice will, will make us all crazy. Mercy is hard. One of the dangers in the church is we impose this sense of sacrifice upon ourselves, but we don't stop there. We're always quick to then turn to other people and say, you need to sacrifice more too. How are you doing? Do you do enough? Get in line, right? Um, but mercy, mercy is something else. And so like, Christian duty must fall within mercy. So we have to understand, part of this is we have to understand how does the Christian life and the sense of duty, how does that live and breathe in light of the overarching concept of mercy? So that, that'll be something we'll talk more about here in the coming months as we shift our theme. So then um, in, in verse 15, Jesus says to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? For the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, or both are pre preserved. Um, what's interesting about this is, here in Matthew 9.15, Jesus talks about the bridegroom, and Jesus responds to John's, uh, let's see, 
John in John 3.29 mentions the bridegroom. So they're, they're on the same page. So then, now John the Baptist and his disciples resurface again in Matthew 11. And this is the parallel account to the sending of the John's disciples to Jesus. John's in prison. He seems as if some time had passed um, because all, it, all that has taken place since Jesus left Nazareth for Galilee. Luke 7, our text for today, provides Jesus' work, raising a centurion servant and then raises the son of the widow of Nain, not Maine, autocorrect does it all the time to me. Um, Luke seven eighteen. so now let's go back to, and we're actually out of time. So here's what we'll do. Let's, if you can, I'll print some more for next week, but if you can remember, bring back your handout. I'll have more if you, if you forget it. But, so we'll continue on with the inquiry itself and um, all the rest that's going on, okay? Your mention of Malachi to Matthew, that's like 400 years. Yeah, like 430. It'd be interesting to just get a little synopsis of the history of what transpired during those 400 years. My dad had pasted something in the Bible from Malachi to Oh. Um, That is a good, that would be a good thing to talk about too. So, all right, we'll see if we can work on that part too a little bit. Okay. All right, so let's go ahead then and uh, we'll close with the collect for the week and then the benediction. Almighty and everlasting God, who governs all things in heaven and on earth, mercifully hear the prayers of your people and grant us your peace through all our days. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Amen. All right. Blessings. Have a good week.